has blessed each one of us with different personalities or temperaments. And your personality isn't right, it isn't wrong, because that's who you are. And each personality has its own strengths, but it also has its own weaknesses. So we have to be careful there. But this guy named Jesus, he lived a perfect life, and he had incredible balance in his life. And this morning, we're starting a new series of teaching on some of the personal characteristics that we want to see in our lives. And it's entitled, Our Attitudes Matter. And each of these personal characteristics that we're going to focus on over the next few weeks are ones that Jesus possessed himself. And some of them aren't too highly thought of in our society today. But the one that we're going to talk about today is one that other people are seeking. And that is intensity. So we live in a world where intensity is applauded. And back in the summer of 1992, Georgine Johnson of Cleveland, Ohio, entered in a 10-kilometer race. She had been training for this. She arrived with just 15 minutes to go before the race. So all she had time to do was stretch and no time to talk to anyone else. But she was surprised by the thousands of people that had gathered for the start of this race. The gun sounded, they took off, and after they'd run seven kilometers, then they veered out of town, heading out into the country. And so she spoke to this guy beside her, like, what's going on? Where are we going? And he gave her this look of, why are you even asking me that? They ran a few more kilometers, and her lungs were killing her, her legs were killing her, and she saw a police officer, and she then realized what had happened. She had entered in the wrong race. So she went up to that police officer, and she said, look, could you drive me back into town? And he said, I've got to stay right here. I can't leave my post. So she didn't know what to do. She got back into the crowd, and she started running. And she was in tears from the pain and the agony. And then she noticed the back of the t-shirt of this guy running in front of her. And his t-shirt said, just do it. So she decided, okay, I will. And she finished that race. So here was this 42-year-old secretary who had never run more than 15 kilometers at one time in her life. And she completed the 42-kilometer marathon. She actually finished 83rd out of all the women and the thousands that were present that day. And we love stories like that. We love that intensity. But there may come a time in our lives when we come up against an overwhelming object or in an incredible opportunity, or it might also be an incredible challenge. And we have to decide whether we're going to quit or whether we're just going to do it. We seldom see intensity like Georgine's in athletics, let alone see it within the spiritual world. But we are going to have to make a choice whether we are going to work for Christ or whether we are going to turn our backs on Him. So what do you have a spiritual passion for? What brings out the intensity in your life? And what is it that brings out just intensity in general? Like is it sports? Or is it your job? Or maybe it's your family? Or maybe there's something else Christ told a story about intensity. And in that story, he gazes into the future and into the lives of his listeners. 
And he's trying to actually determine what is most important in their lives. And as he does that, he leads them to the point of finding integrity. So let's take a look at this story in Luke chapter 16. Now it's sometimes referred to as the parable of the shrewd manager. But we're not even sure that it is a parable because Jesus doesn't refer to it in that way. It could actually be a true story. This could be the life of someone that he's talking about here. And it's more complicated than most of the stories he told. So I'm going to try and retell the story. The manager of an estate was embezzling money from the company. And the owner suspected something was wrong. So he had called for an auditor to come in. So now the manager's wondering, now what am I going to do? How am I going to get out of this? Like there's no way I'm going to escape. I'm in big trouble. But he couldn't say that he was innocent. He couldn't fake his innocence because there was too much evidence against him. He couldn't find another job because nobody would hire a thief. He couldn't go out and do manual labor because his hands were too soft. And I just look at my own hands. Back when I was growing up on the farm, I had all these calluses. And now but it's getting softer and softer. So he couldn't do that. He was just too soft to do manual labor. And he was too proud to go out and beg for money. So he had to come up with something to do. So in order to save his skin, he became creative. He acted quickly before his boss could fire him. And he called a man who owned the company 800 gallons of oil. And he said, look, if, if you give us 50% of that oil, if you give us 400 gallons of oil right now, I'll write off the rest of the debt that you have to us. And the guy said, sure. And he did it. Then he went to another person who owed 1,000 bushels of grain. And he said, we've got a special on today. If you just bring back 20, excuse me, 80% of that grain, then we'll forgive the other 20%. So he gladly did that. Both debtors gladly took advantage of the bargain, even though they thought there might be something a little foul about all of this. So the manager was shrewd, but he was also dishonest. So he falsified the records in order to gain the gratitude of the people that owed to the company. Now this way, if he got fired, he figured, well, I can go to one of those people and they'll hire me because I've got this evidence that they didn't pay the full amount for what they owed. So he figured he had it covered. When the owner found out the, the devious plot that this guy had planned, like we would normally expect him to just be full of anger. But instead of that, he shrugged his shoulders and he commended the manager for what he had done because of his shrewd dealings. And he realized more money has actually been collected than I would have been able to collect myself. Probably wouldn't have received anything back if I kept pushing for a 100% repayment. So if this is a parable, it's a unique one because the owner doesn't represent God. In all the other parables that Jesus told, the owner represented God. But this owner is just another character in the story. And notice how everyone's looking out for number one. Like their greed was motivating everything that they did. Money was the ruling force in their lives. Now some people read this parable or story and they misunderstand the reason why Jesus tells it. 
they think that Jesus is saying it's okay to be dishonest at work. But if you look at the entire story, and the more you dig into it, you realize what Jesus' observation really was. His observation is that the world works so hard for a dollar, and people will do the strangest things to earn that money, that Christians should be a little more inventive in the ways that we share the message of salvation through Christ. So the application of the story begins in Luke 16, verse 8. When the manager's boss realized what he had done, he congratulated him for at least being clever. That's how it is. Those attuned to this evil age are more clever in dealing with their affairs than the enlightened are in dealing with their affairs. So Jesus wasn't approving the behavior of the manager. He was pointing out the sad truth that the world will use more creativity to raise money than the Christian will use creativity in sharing Christ. So the world actually has some things right. I read about one particular Toyota manufacturing plant that had 65% perfect attendance from their workers. And this was how they did it. They promised everyone who had perfect attendance during a certain year that at the end of the year, at their Christmas party, they would put all those names into a hat. And then they would draw out 15 names, and those people each received a brand new car. So there was incentive, incentive. There was intensity to get to work every day to have an opportunity to win that car. And back when I was in grade six, I moved to the big school, a two-room school, moved from a one-room school, and I actually had six people in my grade instead of the nobody in my grade at the one-room school. But I want you to know I was still at the top of my grade. Of those seven people, I still had the highest marks. I forgot to tell the people in the first service. But our teacher, so there were probably 30 altogether in the classroom, and our teacher had what she called deportment. So on the wall was the name of every student, and then a hundred was written beside it. And each time we were caught talking, chewing gum, throwing an eraser, just being an annoyance, the teacher would send us over, we'd cross out the hundred, put in 99, cross out the 99, put in 98. Some of my friends were down around 50 by the end of each month. But there was this little incentive. If we were the highest one at the end of the month, we got two chocolate bars. So who do you think was 100% at the end of every month? Yes, I talk a lot, but I can control it when necessary. So we need to have intense creativity like some of those people did. We, and we need that if we're going to make a difference in our society. A week ago Saturday, we gathered together the core of our congregation that was open to all who wanted to attend. And at that meeting, I introduced our new mission statement, which ties in to the challenge that we've been giving you for the last few months now. Our new mission statement is now, first of all, love God, and that ties in with the challenge to spend at least one hour a week worshiping God. And then the second part of it is love others, and that ties in with our challenge of getting into some type of group, whether it's a home group or a Bible study with other believers, so that we can develop community and we can grow together. And then the third thing to remember is serve the world. Love God, love others, serve the world. It's nice and simple. 
And serving the world starts right here with the service we do within our congregation, but then it's also what we do in serving those outside of our doors. And then I challenged everybody to go boldly beyond where we had never gone before. And I confused that with Star Wars or Star Trek to go where no man has gone. But the challenge is for everybody to just rise up to another level. In verse 9, we read, Learn some lessons from this crooked but clever asset manager. Realize that the purpose of money is to strengthen friendships, to provide opportunities for being generous and kind. Eventually, money will be useless to you. But if you use it generously to serve others, you will be welcomed joyfully into your eternal destination. So Jesus kind of reverses the story around to the way that it should be. Use that money that you have, not to gain friends in this life, but to gain eternal rewards. And why are you here on this earth? That you're here to point people to Jesus Christ and to glorify God through the way in which you interact in the lives of other people. Last week, James Stevenson, one of our associates, talked about sharing our faith with others. And today we know that we need to be creative in the way that we share our resources. And that's the main theme of this story. Don't forget that. But even over in Ephesians, it talks about this. Chapter 5. So be careful how you live. Be mindful of your steps. Don't run around like idiots as the rest of the world does. Instead, walk as the wise. Make the most of every living and breathing moment because these are evil times. So Christians need to be more creative in how we share the gospel. And there is a sense of urgency about that as well. But what type of faith risk would you take to communicate to the Lord that you want to use your resources to multiply the ministry of Christ. And when our elders and ministry leaders talked about what we could do with our building to make some changes so that it wouldn't be a hindrance to our outreach, we also talked about what our commitment was going to be, how we were going to dip into our wallets and into our savings accounts to make a difference in this world. And as a result of that, Beyond Us was born Beyond us was the decision we made to get beyond ourselves. We're not doing this for ourselves. And we also realized that in renovating this building in 2011, we were going to do something beyond our capability. But God had to be a part of this. And that dream came about, and it continues to live. The key thing is that when our life ends, what matters isn't going to be what we had, but it's going to be what we gave away. You might even be familiar with the epitaph on this tombstone. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And Jesus even said, the treasure that you store up in heaven, that's the treasure that's going to last. Not the treasures that you store up here in this world. So if we are faithful stewards, God will reward us greatly, and that reward will bring glory to his name. The problem is, we like to keep track of things. We enjoy the technology that's available to us today. And we can take our computer, 
and we can put all our finances on that computer. We can know where we are with our mutual funds and our stocks, where our savings account is. We can know exactly how much we are worth at any moment. We can just press a few buttons, and there it is. So that's there's good. The benefit of that is that we can always know where we stand financially. The downside of that is we can always know where we stand financially. If the market is going well, then we're having a good day. But if we check and the market is going down, then all of a sudden there's anxiety in our lives. It brings stress. Your worth isn't based on what you have, but it's based on who you are and whose you are. Remember that. Your worth isn't based on what you are, but who you are, which is a Christian, and who you are, which is a child of God. In Corinthians, it says that we've been bought with a price. And you know what that price was? It, it was steep. God didn't just give $50 for each one of us to buy us back and to enable us to be at peace with Him. It cost the life of His Son shed on the cross. That's how much God was willing to do. So now he's wanting us to grasp that truth so that it will dramatically alter how we use our resources. If we have a nice home, then we're going to open that up to people to come in. Like we've had new hardwood steps put in one of our stairways this week. And I'm going to open our house up. I'm not going to keep everybody off those steps. I'm not going to check what's on the bottom of their shoes to see if it might scratch the hardwood. But we use what we have. If you have money, you'll want to use it to spread the gospel of message of Jesus Christ. You want to see that accelerate. You want to see people encouraged. You want to see the needs of the less fortunate be met. Proverbs 9.12 says, If you are wise, wisdom is its own reward. If you mock what you don't understand, you alone suffer the consequences. So start early in the lives of your children. Get them in the habit of giving to the Lord and giving to others. And one family that was with us back in the mid-90s, when they gave their allowance to their daughter, like it was a $3 allowance. I don't know what allowance a good allowance is today. It's been a while since we've done that. But they had a rule. One dollar of that allowance, that child was to give in the offering. The other dollar, the second dollar was to go in savings for when they had some special need come up. And then the third dollar was to spend that week. But it was to instill giving and instill sharing and generosity in the life of that child. Have a proper understanding of what money can't do for you. The Proverbs 9 speaks to that. If you are wise, Wisdom is its own reward. If you mock what you don't understand, you alone will suffer the consequences. So just think of how much harder we should be planning and working to share the message that has eternal consequences. We see intensity everywhere in the world. And people are selling something that doesn't matter in eternity. We've got the real thing, and we want to be sure to share that. So we need some intense honesty as well. We see Jesus talking about this in the story. And he makes an observation on the character of this man. In Luke 16, verses 10 to 12. If you're faithful in small-scale matters, 
you'll be faithful with far bigger responsibilities. If you're crooked in small responsibilities, you'll be no different in bigger things. If you can't handle a small thing like money, who's going to entrust you with spiritual riches that really matter? If you don't manage well someone else's assets that are entrusted to you, who's going to give over to you important spiritual and personal relationships to manage? About 48% of the people in our world admit to stealing from work, like unethically or illegally within the past year. So honesty is still something that we strive for, and it just isn't around there like it used to be. Gallup did a poll in 2012 asking people what they considered to be the most trusted occupation. And nurses, right at the top, they have been for years. And then second on that list was uh, pharmacists. And I thought, you know, pharmacists could sleep a uh, slip the wrong pill in there, but they're number two. Medical doctors were next, and engineers, and then came dentists, police officers, college professors, and at number eight, the clergy was the way we're listed on there. So pastors, ministers, and we used to be number two, but things have happened within our profession over the years, and people aren't as trusted. So what about your profession? Like, we all want to raise the bar within that profession in order to be people of integrity. Again, in Proverbs chapter 11, the right living are guided by integrity, but the crooked ways of the faithless will lead to ruin. So integrity is your best friend. Keep your priorities straight. But if you're honest in those smaller things, then you're going to be entrusted with the big things as well. So concentrate on making certain that you're a person of integrity. In James again, chapter 5, it is even more important, my brothers and sisters, that you remember not to make a vow by the heavens or the earth or by anything. When you say yes, it should always mean yes. And no should always mean no. If you can keep your word, you will avoid judgment. Now, have you ever heard someone who's been questioned say, I swear it's true, but they've said something others don't really believe them, and they'll, I swear it's true, and they'll say, I'll swear on a stack of Bibles that it's true. But James and Jesus both maintain that when a Christian opens his or her mouth, that swearing is not necessary. When we open our mouths, our yes will be yes, our no will be no. There will be no confusion there. And then there's intense loyalty that we see in this story. And actually, Jesus is giving a very hard statement here in verses 13 to 15. Like, imagine you're a servant, and you have two masters giving you orders. What are you going to do when they have conflicting demands? You can't serve both. So you'll either hate the first and love the second, or you'll faithfully serve the first and despise the second. One master is God, and the other is money. You can't serve them both. The Pharisees overheard all this, and they started mocking Jesus, because they really loved money. And then Jesus said this to the Pharisees, You've made your choice. Your ambition is to look good in front of other people, not God. But God sees through to your hearts. He values things differently from you. The goals you and your peers are reaching for, God detests. 
So Jesus is saying that we can't serve two masters. There's no room for casual Christianity. There, this is a place for loyalty and allegiance. This is a place where we say, Jesus, I'm on your team. Or, I've got your back. And I could go on and on with all these sports analogies that we use when we're letting somebody know that they're not alone, that we're with them, that we're working with them on this team. But you know something? We're a lot more like the Pharisees than we care to admit. We place more importance on our sports, on our hobbies, on our travels, on our toys than we really should. We place more importance on our money that we save, that we invest, that we spend. And God isn't impressed with those things as much as we place a high premium upon them. Like, do you think your paycheck impresses the God of the universe? Or do you think he's concerned about the way you look? Do you think he's concerned about whether you can hit the golf ball straight or not? You know, actually, the golf ball, which is a slight curve to the left, is the perfect shot. So you don't want to hit it straight anyway. And, but do you think he's concerned with your soul and your witness and whether your heart belongs to him or not? Back in 1990, Brett Butler, who was with the San Francisco Giants. He was a baseball player. He became a free agent so he could sign with any team. And the Los Angeles Dodgers, who were enemies of the San Francisco Giants, gave him the best offer. So he signed with them. And then, early in the season, the two teams met for the first time. And you can just imagine that Brett Butler was the center of attention. There were interviews before the game. There was all kinds of hoopla. And then the two teams with this intense rivalry played that first game, and it was in San Francisco, back at the old field he used to play at. The starting lineups were announced, and an interesting thing happened. As Brett Butler's name was announced, there was all kinds of cheering going on. You'd actually expect booing because this guy had deserted San, the Dodgers, excuse me, San Francisco and gone to the Dodgers. But they, they cheered for him. And this was an opportunity for Brett Butler to just kind of tip his hat and say, thank you for being so kind to me, even though I deserted you. But after they cheered, Brett Butler then went over to his new manager, Tommy Lasorda, and gave him a big hug. And then the boos and all the jeers came down from the stands. And after the game, all the reporters were asking Butler, like, why did you do that? You had a chance to just make a smooth transition and just acknowledge the cheers of your former fans. And he responded by saying, I turned a new page in my career. I'm now an L.A. Dodger and not a San Francisco Giant, and I want the fans to know that I'm a Dodger. And when a person becomes a Christian, in one way or another, we need to embrace Jesus. And that's in the sight of family, it's in the sight of friends, it's in the sight of co-workers, it's in the sight of the people that live in our neighborhood. And the guys in my home group were talking about this on Thursday night. We were talking about being a witness at work, letting people know that we are followers of Jesus Christ. So we were praying for some of the people that some of the guys had been witnessing to. We need to let people know that we are Christians. We need to let them know who we are loyal to. Even though they might ridicule you, even though they might sneer at you, they're 
has to be no question in their minds as to who your allegiance is to Lord. How's your intensity? Are you serious about your faith? Or are you just kind of going to church once a week and then it's kind of out of sight, out of mind until the next Sunday? God doesn't want people who are casual Christians, who are worried about offending people with Christianity, because He wants them to let people know that they are Christians. He wants people who are totally loyal, who are totally sold out, because there comes a time in our lives when we do face obstacles, when there is that mountain that we have to cross, where the frustrations come, where we have to make a choice as to whether we're going to follow the master of this world or we're going to serve Jesus Christ. We have to just do it. We have to make the decision to follow Jesus. You have a chance to make a commitment to Jesus here today, to join in running the race. And I want you to know that this isn't a 100-yard dash, and it's not a 5-kilometer race, it's not a 10-kilometer race, but this is a marathon. It's 42 kilometers. It's going to go on and on and on. But the thing is that Christ promises that he will beside, be beside you every step of the way. So if you've never stepped out in faith and given your life to Jesus Christ, if you've never made that commitment, we encourage you to do that. Talk to me after the service. Talk to one of our other leadership. But make that decision and experience that intensity of the Christian life to bear with you. Father, we thank you so much for the example of Jesus. We thank you for the life that he lived. And now, Father, that we've got to follow that example. That he, he's done it all. He told us how to do it. And now he has also told that he will help us do. It's not just telling us, but working with us through the Spirit to go out and make a difference for you. But Father, this is going to be the week when we don't hold all of our faith inside. This is going to be the week where we just don't go to work and blend in with everybody else and not make a difference. This is going to be the week when we speak up when we let people know that we are a believer in Jesus Christ. And when we do that, your word tells us that we're going to be planting seeds. And those seeds will grow. And it might even be someone else that comes along and shares again with that individual that leads them to that final point of accepting your Son as Lord and Savior, repenting and surrendering their lives to him and being baptized into him. Father, to be bold as we do that this week. We pray in Christ's name.